Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. For the first time since 1934, the party in the White House picked up Senate and governor seats in a midterm election. The lead starts right now. Senator Raphael Warnock keeps his seat, giving Democrats a slight edge in the next Congress. Is this because of Biden's strengths or a Trump albatross? And a former Republican congressman arrested, accused of secretly signing a $50 million contract to be a foreign agent for Venezuela. What CNN is now learning from a new federal indictment, plus A raid today uncovering a dangerous plot to overthrow the government the suspects described as far-right terrorists who subscribe to the deranged beliefs of QAnon. This time, thankfully, the plot was not in the United States. Uh, Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead. The midterms dust has finally settled. And we now have a clear look at the exact makeup of the next U.S. Congress. Moments ago, Senator Raphael Warnock met with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer after Warnock won his runoff election in Georgia last night, giving Democrats a cushion space to lose a vote and still have the simple majority in the chamber. And as much as this was a victory for Democrats, it also seems a rebuke of Donald Trump with his hand-picked candidate Herschel Walker falling short. And now Republicans are pointing fingers. Senator Mitt Romney called the Trump endorsement the kiss of death. And other members of the Republican Party are adding their voices to the chorus of criticism. We can never let Donald Trump let us get to this spot again. We've got two years to get our act together. We have to to coalesce around the fact that we want to win the White House in 2024. And it's going to take a serious-minded, policy-minded individual that truly wants to be a leader. Not not just the, you know, win a campaign and and be be a hero on Twitter. CNN's Manu Raju starts off our coverage today from Capitol Hill with more details on the Republican reckoning after another disappointing loss. Hello there. Senate Republicans are reeling after a disappointing uh, election cycle, leaving them deeper in the minority and now trying to figure out what went wrong. It was frustrating. You know, clearly I was optimistic that we would get a majority. Herschel Walker's loss to Democrat Raphael Warnock in Tuesday's Georgia runoff giving Democrats an additional seat and a slim 51-49 majority in the chamber. It comes after Republicans also fell short in Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Arizona, and Nevada, all states they had hoped to win. At the heart of the GOP criticism, the role of Donald Trump, who handpicked Walker and several other candidates who faltered in the general election. Stumping late on the campaign trail for Republicans who ultimately lost. Was Donald Trump a problem this year? Democrats in many cases were able to kind of turn it into a choice election because of of, uh, Trump's presence out there. Because a lot of the candidates that had problems in these elections were um, running on the 2020 election being stolen. And I don't think independent voters were having it. Utah GOP Senator Mitt Romney, 
calling Trump's endorsement the kiss of death. And retiring Pennsylvania Republican Pat Toomey saying Walker's loss is another example that, quote, the Trump obsession is very bad for Republicans. Trump defenders pushing back. No, <laughs> I think we're losing close elections, uh, not because of Donald Trump. So if the answer to everything in town is this Trump's problem, then you're, you're missing the boat. Some directing their anger at Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell for refusing to embrace an election year agenda. No agenda. No agenda. I believe we ought to have a Republican agenda and give people a real purpose for how to vote, why to vote for us. Yet many blame Rick Scott's Senate campaign arm for staying out of GOP primaries in 2022, with GOP leaders calling on the party to intervene in primaries in the 2024 cycle, when Democrats are defending 23 seats and Republicans just 11. Should you have taken a more active role and try to prop up the candidates who would have been more electable? Well, I think you've got to rely on the voters of the states. It's their states. Uh, I mean, there's talk of... I trust voters. The additional seat now gives Senate Democrats more power to issue subpoenas and breathing room to confirm President Biden's nominations. Turn left. Turn left, Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> or at least don't turn hard right. Now, I just asked Raphael Warnock as he came back to the Capitol whether or not Donald Trump had a role in helping him and by propping up a candidate who had turned out to be weak in the general election. He brushed that aside said, I think the people of Georgia deserve a great deal of credit for seeing the differences between me and my opponent. And as far as Trump and his future role in the Republican Party, Lindsey Graham told me today that it'll be up to Trump to prove that he can win in order to win over Republican voters ahead of 2024. Okay, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks. Joining us now to discuss Congressman-elect Maxwell Frost of Florida, the first member of Gen Z ever elected to Congress, and hopefully not the last, yep. I would hope. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I know you campaigned with Senator Warnock uh, in the days leading up to the election. After his win last night, you tweeted, quote, what's that about progressive values not being able to win the South again? What do you say to critics who say, you know, this really wasn't an endorsement of progressive values. Uh, it was that Herschel Walker was just a horrific candidate. Yeah, well, I'd tell them to go out on the campaign trail with someone like Senator Reverend Warnock. Um, you know, being out there, feeling that energy, especially from young people, right, a voting block that traditionally has had trouble getting out to go vote. We see them going out voting in droves for great candidates and the energy that we saw. I mean, we didn't do one event that wasn't standing room only. Um, young folks are really excited to hear the message from him. And so and what we found, too, from a lot of the research we did when I was at March for Our Lives is that young people want someone to vote for and not against. So less concerned about people like Walker and more concerned about who is our going to be who's going to be our champion. And I think that's what we saw last night. On, on the other hand, uh, you could argue that Reverend, I'm sorry, uh, Senator Reverend Warnock, um, he, he he's definitely a progressive, but he ran as somebody who was in the center more. His pitch was kind of, look at what I'm doing for veterans. I work across the aisle. I'm really into bipartisanship. His general election pitch wasn't about uh, LGBTQ rights, although I, I, he did run a lot of ads uh, uh, about Roe v. Wade, so with that one exception. Yeah, I think that what we saw was that he leaned into the values of our party, and it wasn't about red versus blue. It wasn't about Democrat versus Republican. It was about the people versus the problem. And for me, that is inherently what progressive values mean to me, right? Ensuring that we're all coming together to 
fight against these issues that we're up against, climate crisis, gun violence, uh, protecting uh, the right to safe and legal access to abortion. And so that's what I meant by progressive values. I saw that on the campaign trail with him. And it's really something that brings people together and doesn't divide our country. So let's talk about what it looks like once you're in Congress. You'll be in a Congress where the Republicans have the majority. Uh, You recently told Vox this about your approach to legislating, quote, you have to get buy-in from your colleagues and you have to work, you have to sometimes work with people across the aisle as well. I mean, you're definitely going to have to work with people across the aisle to get anything done in this Congress. Have you reached out to any Republicans to talk about areas where you might be able to work together? Yeah, actually, during orientation, I had the opportunity to make connections with incoming Republicans from my own state of Florida. Uh, We actually had some really good discussions. I mean, look, we have a lot of disagreements, uh, but we agreed on things like offshore drilling in Florida, public transportation, which is a huge issue, especially in central Florida right now, and housing. So I think there is room to work together. But I really want to make sure, I mean, we saw that after Republicans found out that they were going to take control of the House, the first thing they talked about was Hunter Biden. And I don't think that's what the American people want us to work on, right? I think they want us to focus on these issues um, that are impacting their day-to-day. Your top issues, according to your website, are Medicare for all, banning some uh, versions of semi-automatic weapons, background checks for all gun sales, the Green New Deal, Mm -hmm. things that your party couldn't get past when you had the majority. Yeah. is there another list of priority, like <laughs> second priority items or third priority yeah. items that you think can actually get 218 votes? Yeah. Well, the banning assault weapons is actually under our uh, platform of ending gun violence, which right. is a lot, right? There's a lot that we can do there, I think, in a bipartisan way. Like uh, what? Well, I think we can work together to get more money for community violence intervention. These are programs on the ground level that help end gun violence before it happens, getting kids off the streets, teaching them arts, boxing. I mean, in Orlando, we have one called Guns Down, Gloves Up. These programs are actually shown, evidence-based, to end gun violence before it even happens and really gives resources to the community. Um, And I think that's something that we can get bipartisan support on. Um, And so I think there's creative ways to work on all these issues where, look, we might not get our North Star. We we aren't going to get our North Star uh, in the next two years, but we can work towards that. Uh, But my thing is I never want to give up on talking about the world that I believe in, right? In order to take a first step in a journey, you got to know where you want to end up. Um, And so I think there's a lot of room, though, to take those first steps. One of our correspondents in Florida, Leila Santiago, did a piece on the red flag laws that you have in Florida. And she Mm -hmm. did an interview with the sheriff, I think, of Pasco County. I might Mm -hmm. be getting that wrong. But a conservative sheriff who really was talking about how effective it was, uh, especially in preventing uh, self-harm. Yeah. Um, But that's not been something that has been able to be brought uh, before our national uh, legislators, uh, something something to think about. Yeah, no, like, definitely. Um, how will you uh, counter concerns from those across the aisle who look at you and say, wait a second, you're a congressman? You're 25 years old, yeah. uh, wearing your new tie, um, that you don't have any government experience. Yeah. I mean, there, you're going to be, some of your fellow freshmen are going to be like 70-year-old former judges and that sort yeah. of thing, you know what I mean? How do you, how do you convince them, though, hey, man, I'm serious? Yeah, well, look, we sit down and we talk about the issues. We talk about where we want to get to. And every time I have those conversations, people are pleasantly surprised. They're really excited to work with me. I know there's a stigma I have to get over. Um, I had to get through that stigma in my primary and my general election. Um, And I'm used to being the youngest person in the room. You know, I really hope that me even being in Congress can help challenge the caricature that we have set for our candidates. I think we need more working class people non-traditional candidates in Congress to really represent the country. Well, you're going to have to get one of those congressional pins. Yeah, first right. Of all. You might also want to talk to Senator Ossoff, who I understand sometimes still gets stopped before yep. he walks into the <laughs> Senate chambers because he looks very young, yep. too. You talk a lot about the youth vote um, and how the younger generation is the future, obviously. 
I, I do wonder, as President Biden considers what to do next, mm-hmm. whether or not he should run for re-election. He's, he just turned 80 years old. Yeah. Do you think your par- he's your party's best candidate for 2024? Yeah, I mean, I think if he, if he wants to run, he's, he's signaled that he wants to run. Um, I'm excited to support him. The largest youth voter turnout we ever had in our country was in 2020. For, for Joe Biden, right? And I think it's important to keep that in mind. So I'm excited to support him. And we see a lot of other leaders coming up through the ranks on local office and in statewide office and also the congressional level that I think are going to work with the president to bring out the youth vote. And you're going to have some new Democratic leaders in Congress. Yep. Now, uh, Gen Xers, mm-hmm. uh, including Hakeem Jeffries, who will be the Democratic leader and the yep. first African-American to ever lead a major American political party in the House or the Senate. That yep. must be kind of cool for you. No, it is really cool for me, and it's exciting. And I think it shows that, I mean, you know, yes, I'll be the first Gen Z year in Congress, but we have a lot of firsts coming in, especially in this freshman class. So there's a lot to be hopeful for. All right. Well, congratulations ahead of time to when you get sworn in. Good to see you, Congressman-elect Maxwell Frost. Thank you. Ahead, the mounting legal problems for Donald Trump as CNN now learns a search team discovered even more classified documents in Florida, plus an eye-raising comment from Russia's Vladimir Putin, who says the threat of nuclear war is increasing. And the dreaded but necessary process happening right now at the home where four college students were killed in Idaho. Stay with us. In the politics lead, a source now confirms to CNN a search has uncovered two documents with classified markings at a storage unit in Florida used by Donald Trump. And those documents have now been handed over to the FBI. The Washington Post was first to report the discovery. As CNN Sarah Murray reports, sources say searches have now been conducted at four different Trump properties and come as Trump's legal problems continue to escalate. It's tax fraud, but really it's, it's cheating, it's lying, it's greed. Mr. President! Former President Donald Trump under pressure from an ever-growing pile of legal problems. You have the, the namesake company of a former president of the United States, uh, held accountable uh, by a jury by way of a criminal conviction. A Manhattan jury finding two Trump organization companies guilty of multiple charges of criminal tax fraud and falsifying business records, part of a 15-year scheme to defraud tax authorities. Trump and his family weren't charged in the case, but the investigation into Trump's companies continues. This is one chapter, an important chapter, uh, but there are a lot of, uh, you know, tentacles. Trump also grappling with two federal probes, an investigation into his handling of classified government documents after he left the White House. This is a new hoax, the document hoax. And a sprawling probe into efforts to subvert the 2020 election. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. Amid concerns from the Justice Department that Trump is still holding on to sensitive government documents. It's not a crime. And... They should give me immediately back everything that they've taken from me because it's mine. It's mine. Trump's lawyers recently hiring a team to search Trump Tower, the Bedminster Golf Club, and two other properties for classified materials, a source tells CNN. They found at least two items marked classified in a storage unit in West Palm Beach. The investigation into the 2020 election also moving ahead, with more grand jury testimony from former Trump advisor Stephen Miller. Simple principle, one citizen, one vote. And special counsel Jack Smith firing off a fresh round of subpoenas to county election officials in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Arizona. Investigators seeking more information about communications from Trump and allies such as Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell with battleground state officials. Adding to Trump's headaches. We have made decisions that criminal referrals will happen. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol, weighing criminal referrals for Trump and a number of his closest allies, sources tell CNN. 
the facts support a, uh, a potential charge against the former president. And, you know, the Justice Department, in my view, needs to hold e you know, everyone equally responsible before the law. Now, look, the Justice Department does not take its cues from Congress. In many ways, these criminal referrals are going to be largely symbolic, but they are important to the committee. And we have heard from a number of members that they think that criminal referrals are important for the historical record and to show the Justice Department that they do believe that crimes were committed. Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Also in our politics lead today, some members of the January 6th Select House Committee are meeting on Capitol Hill today as they try to decide how many criminal referrals to make to the Justice Department. CNN's Jamie Gengel joins us live. Jamie, walk us through how this is all unfolding behind the scenes. So what they're deciding now is exactly who they're going to do. Is Donald Trump one of those people? I think Adam Schiff just made it clear, yes, Donald Trump is going to be on the list. Who are the other people that they're going to pick? What I've been told is that the committee, they don't want it to be, my words, willy-nilly. This is not going to be a large group of people. They are very deliberately looking at people where they think they have solid evidence, critical evidence that they can pass over on to the Department of Justice. And the crimes include uh, the same kind of crimes we've seen, for instance, in the Oath Keepers case, disrupting an official proceeding, uh, seditious conspiracy, obstruction of justice, witness tampering. Do we have any idea uh, what kinds of charges we're talking about. So we don't have names yet. We don't have numbers. We don't have the charges. I think seditious conspiracy is the highest bar. It's tough. That's, to that's going to be tough. Yeah. But witness tampering, obstruction, uh, perjury, possibly, I think those could all be part of what we see here. So a uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney told me a few weeks ago her view was that Donald Trump, her personal view, not as, speak, not as speaking, not as the vice chair, but her personal view is that Donald Trump broke the law. How much influence do you think Cheney has on these decisions as the vice chair? There's, there's nothing like getting one member of Congress in trouble with the rest of the committee right. by saying that they have uh, outsized influence. I think she has enormous influence on it. First of all, she's the vice chair. Secondly, she's a Republican and a conservative Republican. Right. And she brought tremendous value to the committee. She's also a trained lawyer. She went to University of Chicago. So I think she's not just the chair, the vice chair of the committee. She's on this subcommittee deciding the criminal referrals. Uh, Liz Cheney looks at everything very carefully. We frequently said she doesn't say anything by accident. I believe she will be looking through these criminal referrals and signing off on each and every one of them. Yeah, I mean, I've heard from other members of the committee that she is perhaps the hardest worker of all the members of the committee. Perhaps. Not, not, not 100%, but, but she, she's one of the hardest workers. No question. And, and let's not forget how much she had to give up. Right. She knew going into this, she would likely lose her seat in Congress. Uh, is her political career over? We don't know that yet. But she has been uh, absolutely focused and, and devoted to this committee. All right, Jamie Gengel, thanks so much. Sure. Really appreciate it. Coming up, Vladimir Putin's comment today about a nuclear war that's raising new concerns, plus the new warnings in China, just as that nation reverses course to a degree and eases some COVID restrictions. Stay with us.
And we're back with our world lead, a day of intense fighting on the eastern front of Ukraine. You're looking at the aftermath of Ukrainian shelling in occupied Donetsk, where Russian leaders say at least four people were killed Tuesday. And today, just 30 miles to the west in Kurakove, Ukrainian officials say at least eight civilians were killed by Russian strikes. CNN's Sam Kiley is at a hospital in Kramatorsk, where wounds inflicted by modern weapons of war require innovative, life-saving techniques. Wartime brain surgery in tandem. Wounded in battle on the same day on the same front. Two young men, the focus of these over-practiced neurosurgeons. Kramatorsk is often bombed. The windows, even in here, are taped to slow flying glass. The effort is intense to repair brains, to save lives, memories, loves and future dreams. They would have little idea where to start their delicate work if they didn't have use of this CT scanner. It can pinpoint damage, find what it's done, and it gives surgeons a plan of action. He says, yes, and unfortunately there is no left eye. There's a suspicion of damage to the right eye as well, but definitely no left eye. This is the fourth patient we've seen in the space of about an hour come in for a CT scan. It's supposed to be doing 15 or 20 a day. They're actually doing 70 or 80. In short, it's wearing out. This equipment is vital. The hospital can't afford a new one, but a used one's for sale in the west of Ukraine. Cost about 120,000 bucks. Price of losing this one, incalculable. He says he shows signs of severe cranial cerebral injury with acute subdernal hematoma and severe brain contusion. He needs urgent surgery. The administrators here have raised about $60,000. They need help with the rest. This is the only CT scanner in a vast region. Critical. This machine is critical. CT is critical to provide appropriate care for patients with both head wounds and acute brain injuries. Is it saving lives? Definitely, absolutely, 100%. There's been a steady flow of soldiers injured in and near Bakhmut. That is the scene of the heaviest fighting. But this is a hospital that is trying to deal really with an area, they say, about 300 square kilometers, and a lot of that is at war. Some soldiers are relatively lucky. Duck was shooting mortars at the Russians, who shot mortars back. My commander was lucky. He sat in front of me and I sat behind him, and he was unhurt, and I got hit in the leg. But yeah, we've seen wounded and dead before. If I'm sitting here, I'm lucky. Ukrainians on this eastern front call it the meat grinder. Czech was alongside Duck when they were hit. How would you describe the battle for Bakhmut? One world. He says World War I, trenches, mud, blood, trenches, mud again, artillery, trench warfare. That's it, World War I and World War II, something like that. Verdun, the Somme, something like that. The difference is that modern weapons are now more powerful. Modern surgery, often the only route to survival. That, an old-fashioned grit. Now, Jake, uh, that hospital and indeed other hospitals I visited on this uh, front line is having to heat itself. 
using uh, self-installed boilers burning uh, anything from rubbish through to coal and wood. Uh, they are short of electricity because of the Russian attacks on the electrical systems. Frequently, they are hit with power cuts and have to resort to uh, generators. Of course, they need CT scans, they need MRIs, and the wounded keep pouring in, Jake. This is a ferocious front line as both the Russians and the Ukrainians have shifted their soldiers from the southern battles up to this. Very much focused on Bakhmut at the moment, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley in Kramatorsk, Ukraine, thank you so much. As the heavy fighting rages on, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spent the day visiting wounded troops, presenting medals of honor, one to an American fighter who volunteered on the front lines for Ukraine. The same day, Time magazine named Zelensky and the spirit of Ukraine as its person of the year. CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, has been following the evolution of Putin's brutal war since the beginning, and she joins us in studio now. Good to see you and know that you're safe. Good to be here. It's not always something I'm confident of. Um, So today, Russian President Putin said the threat of nuclear war is increasing. Now, we've seen him and heard him saber-rattling before, um, but as the war drags on and his stockpiles of traditional weapons deplete, do you think that this threat of using a nuke becomes more real? The threat definitely becomes more real, and the threat can't be discounted, certainly. But I think what you heard, if you listened to Putin's entire comments today, was kind of a typical example of him trying to play both sides. So he said, of course, we're not crazy. We'd never be the first to use nuclear weapons. We only have them as a deterrent. But then at the same time, he says, but the risk is definitely increasing. And by the way, ours are more modern and more sophisticated than yours are. So on the one hand, he's trying to defuse the situation, while on the other hand, he's continuing to stoke it because the threat of uh, the nuclear weapons is almost more important to him than the actual use of them. He understands that that carries such a deep fear, not just with Ukrainians, but with people all around the world. And so that's a very important lever for him to have Uh, at his, you know, beck and call. At the same time, most people are saying we don't see any indication that he actually intends or is preparing to use them. Yeah, one of the weapons that he is using uh, is this mercenary group called the Wagner uh, Group. It's run by one of the oligarchs, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, You and I have talked about him before. And Prigozhin, this week, warned the U.S. not to provoke his group by designating the Wagner Group a terrorist organization, You've covered the Wagner Group extensively for years. You were even tracked and intimidated uh, by them, or at least they tried to intimidate you in 2019. When Prigozhin issues a warning Mm. like this one, quote, let sleeping dogs lie, do not wake Wagner, Americans, while it's still sleeping, how seriously should the U.S. take that, do you think? I think the thing you have to understand about the Wagner Group is that they really rely heavily on the myth of the Wagner group. They relish in their brutality. And now that we've seen Yevgeny Prigozhin come out of the shadows and kind of claim a much more public role and issue a lot of threats and talk about the need to carpet bomb Ukraine, um, I think they're playing up to that brutality even more. When we were in the Central African Republic doing that story and we were talking to U.S. officials, the, the sort of message we were given was, don't give these guys too much credit. They're pretty incompetent and they're not that effective. Fast forward to where we are now, I think there are still very real issues around, surrounding whether or not they're competent and how much of an impact they're having on the battlefield in Ukraine. 
but they certainly are a significant force. And what makes them dangerous and difficult to contend with is that they don't answer to anyone officially. There is no accountability for a group like Wagner. And as we have seen in some of these horrific execution videos, they are willing to stoop to acts of great brutality to achieve their objectives. Yeah, it doesn't take any great strategic mind to, to, to rape kids or whatever the, their late, latest crimes are. Um, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Good to see you in person, Clarissa. Coming up next, a former Republican congressman arrested the multi-million dollar contract with Venezuela that now has the lawmaker facing a federal indictment. Stay with us. In our world lead, we are tracking what seem to be dramatic changes to the Chinese government's strict zero COVID strategy that recently prompted nationwide protests for nearly three years. Chinese government has relied on its unwavering restrictions. And now some of those policies appear to be loosening. But as CNN's Ivan Watson reports for us now, the winter season is likely to bring in a surge of severe COVID cases that authorities fear could harm the country's elderly population. China is the last country in the world still trying to completely eradicate COVID. But after months of harsh restrictions, some of the COVID lockdown barriers in China are starting to come down. This move by authorities comes just days after protests erupted across the country against Beijing's zero COVID policy. This breath of fresh air for some exhausted citizens carries a harsh reality. Experts predict a tough COVID winter is likely coming. The winter is the worst time to have a large epidemic because hospitals may already be under pressure for other reasons during the winter. The highly contagious Omicron variant is already spreading through the Chinese population. Unlike the rest of the world, very, very few people in China proportionally have had COVID. And that's because of the strict lockdowns that the Chinese government has implemented. And so there's a very low baseline immunity. The other issue is that China has been using its domestically produced vaccines, which are less effective than the mRNA vaccines. China has one of the world's highest COVID vaccination rates. But vaccination for the elderly in China lags far behind. 23% of Chinese citizens over 80 are completely unvaccinated. That leaves roughly 8.4 million very vulnerable, unvaccinated people. So if COVID was to spread through China now, I think we'd see a lot of severe cases in in that group of people with with either no vaccination or, or no recent vaccination. Epidemiologists say Hong Kong may offer a roadmap for what could happen in mainland China. After Hong Kong successfully maintained a zero-COVID bubble for nearly two years, Omicron spread out of control here last winter. At the peak of the outbreak, Hong Kong suffered more than 7,000 deaths in six weeks, most of them elderly. At the time, it was the highest COVID mortality rate in the world, driven largely, experts say, by very low vaccination rates among people over 60. Per capita, mainland China has almost half the number of critical care beds in hospital compared to Hong Kong. China got its investments backwards. So by putting their focus on testing and not on vaccines and treatments, China has actually not prepared the country and the citizens for what happens when zero COVID ends, which it inevitably would end at some point. China was the scene of the world's first known COVID outbreak in December of 2019. If the experts are right, it could also be the last country that faces a COVID crisis. 
Now, Jake, China is the world's most populous country, a population of 1.4 billion people. There are some scientific models that predict that it could lose from one to two million people uh, the mortality rate if it gets hit by a major outbreak. Uh, the Chinese government is trying to jumpstart its vaccination program, get those people most vulnerable vaccinated. The experts wondering why this didn't start earlier. Jake? And Ivan, tell us more about the announcements that the Chinese government is making regarding restrictions that they seem to be loosening. Yeah, they are loosening up. You can now travel between regions. Uh, I know one person in Shanghai saying, oh, wow, I can go visit my parents for the first time in months in another province. Uh, That's spiked a surge of uh, interest in buying plane tickets, for example. Uh, But it's also triggered fear because for years, the Chinese government has been warning its people how deadly COVID is. Now it's incredible. The narrative in state media has shifted. Now they're trying to downplay it, say it's not as deadly. But that's kind of whiplash for a lot of Chinese people. So there are there's a rush uh, on over-the-counter fever medicine, vitamin C, uh, cold medicine. And there are some people that are actually worried uh, about getting hit by this illness, something that kind of people in other countries are over right now. Ivan Watson in Hong Kong, thank you so much. Also in our world lead today, David Rivera, former Republican congressman from Florida, has been arrested on several federal charges, which include illegally lobbying for Venezuela. Rivera, who served in Congress from 2011 to 2013, made a $50 million deal in 2017, authorities say, with Venezuela's state-run oil company in exchange for his attempts to ease relations between Venezuela and the United States. CNN's Carlos Suarez is following the story for us. Carlos, uh, tell us more about the charges against Rivera. Well, Jake, that 34-page indictment details how the Cuban-American Republican was paid millions of dollars by the Venezuelan socialist government to improve relations between the U.S. and Venezuela. Now, according to the feds, Rivera and a co-defendant, they set up meetings with U.S. officials in 2017 and 2018, all in an effort to push the Trump administration not to impose additional sanctions against the Venezuelan government. And in exchange, well, the government there would agree to, quote, fair and free elections. That's, of course, something that never happened Prosecutors said that Rivera was paid millions of dollars from that $50 million contract that he had with the U.S. subsidiary of the state-owned oil company in Venezuela. And Jake, his attorneys, well, they had no comment on the indictment. And Carlos, what else do we know about Rivera's connection with U.S. politicians who are mentioned in the indictment? Well, Jake, none of the three officials that were listed in the indictment are named. We're talking about a U.S. senator from Florida, a U.S. congressman from Texas, and a White House advisor. But we know that the senator was Marco Rubio because his office confirmed the details to CNN. Now, the indictment describes a 2017 text message that Rivera sent Rubio before Rubio had a meeting at the White House. Rivera wrote, quote, remember... U.S. should facilitate, not just support, a negotiated solution. No vengeance, reconciliation. Rubio's office was uh, quick to point out that uh, uh, that Rivera never said he was lobbying on behalf of the Venezuelan government and that Rubio, well, he never softened his stance on sanctions. Important to note here, Jake, that none of the officials listed in the indictment are accused of any wrongdoing. Jake. All right, Carlos Suarez, thank you so much. Coming up next, why police are re-interviewing people as part of their investigation into the killings of four Idaho college students. (laughs) 
Police have begun the process of removing the personal belongings from the house where four Idaho college students were brutally killed three and a half weeks ago. Those items will be returned to the victims' families, we're told. And now Moscow police are insisting the case is not cold, even though three and a half weeks have passed without any suspects or arrests. CNN's Nick Watt joins us now. Nick, what do we know about the items being returned to the families? Well, Jake, the uh, police chief said that some of the families had asked for these items to be returned to them. He said that maybe they hold fond memories. Maybe they were items that the parents had given to their kids. And he says that he hopes that in some way this can help even just a little bit with their process of healing. Um, The chief also states that, remember, this house is still an active crime scene. You mentioned three and a half weeks since these murders. The weapon has not been found. No suspect in custody. And there is growing frustration amongst the families and the public at the slow progress of this investigation, or at least the slow progress from the way we see it, from the public angle. We don't entirely know exactly what is going on behind closed doors with this investigation. Right, but the families of the victims have been complaining publicly too. The police chief told one media outlet that investigators are are re-interviewing some folks. Where does the investigation exactly stand? Well, I mean, he said that, you know, listen, lots of people so far have been ruled out. Nobody's been ruled in. And the chief is saying that, you know, we can go back and we will go back and we have gone back to re-interview people as new information arises and maybe to ask the same questions, but in slightly different ways, just to make sure we're getting the right information. He stresses that this is common practice in any investigation. Um, now, you know, uh, he also is at pains to say that we are still making progress in this investigation. Detectives right now are combing through about six and a half thousand tips that have come in so far. But police are asking for more tips, for more information. They're This week, they're looking into a number of things. One of them is exactly where two of the victims were in about the five hours before they were murdered. Um, They're looking for Ethan Chapin, uh, Zana Kernodal. They were apparently at a frat house. But police are saying, listen, if you had any interaction with them whatsoever, please let us know, because that could help us put together a picture of exactly what happened that night. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the raid uncovering a far-right plot to overthrow Germany's government and how a castle ended up part of the crime scene. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, thousands of police searching homes, including a castle belonging to the alleged ringleader of a group of far-right extremists. The plot to overthrow Germany's government that has some eerie similarities to what happened January 6, 2021, here in the U.S. Plus, sources now say investigators are zeroing in on two possible motives for that North Carolina power attack, and both involve extremist behavior. And leading this hour, the Supreme Court today hearing arguments in a case that could theoretically completely upend the American election system at issue whether state legislators can't have the ultimate power over the will of the people. In minutes, we're going to talk to the Attorney General of the state in dispute, but our coverage starts with CNN's Jessica Schneider, who listened to the Supreme Court oral arguments today on why this case could be the most important case in the history of our American democracy. 
who controls U.S. elections? That's the central question before the Supreme Court today. It's a case that revolves around an obscure legal theory that says state legislatures should have the final say on election procedures and redistricting, not state courts. The blast radius from their theory would sow elections chaos, forcing a confusing two-track system with one set of rules for federal elections and another for state ones. North Carolina Republicans who lead the state legislature are challenging a ruling from their state Supreme Court, striking down a redistricting map they drew. They're relying on the independent state legislature theory, the idea that state legislatures should have unchecked power to control election procedures and that state courts and state constitutions have no role in checking that power. It's a concept that was first raised by Chief Justice William Rehnquist in the Bush v. Gore decision. And while four conservatives on the court have previously expressed interest in the issue, Justice Brett Kavanaugh seemed to push back on it as too broad of an expansion of state legislative power. Your position seems to go further than Chief Justice Rehnquist's position in Bush v. Gore, where he seemed to acknowledge that state courts would have a role interpreting state law. Some Trump supporters seized on the theory in 2020 to argue state lawmakers in battleground states had the power to override the will of voters and choose presidential electors who favored Trump. The Supreme Court's ruling likely would not extend to the issue of electors, but some are warning it could be a slippery slope if the court finds in favor of the Republicans here. It would make the election-related decisions of legislators uh, effectively unreviewable by state court judges, cutting neutral arbiters out of the process, and it would allow politically motivated legislators to engage in extreme disenfranchisement of voters. The hours-long debate centered around what the founders intended when they wrote the Constitution and the meaning of the Elections Clause that says the times, places, and manner of holding elections are for the legislature to determine. I think what might strike a person is that uh, this is a proposal that gets rid of the normal checks and balances. Legislators, we all know, have their own self-interest. They want to get reelected. And so there are countless times when they have incentives to suppress votes. And Justice Kagan wasn't the only one asking skeptical questions. The Chief Justice John Roberts, along with Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett on the conservative side, they all pushed back on a broad reading of this independent state legislature theory. And Jake, it really suggests that this court might try to find some middle ground if they do, in fact, end up embracing this theory. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss is Josh Stein. He's the attorney general in North Carolina, uh, which is the center of this dispute. So you're in charge of elections in North Carolina. Can you give us some examples of how, if the court ultimately rules uh, in favor of letting Republican, uh, Republican legislators, let's say hypothetically, but state legislators uh, take over, um, elections in North Carolina could change? Like, what's, what's the real risk here? What's the worst case scenario? Far and away, the biggest issue for North Carolina has to do with how we redistrict every decade. The way our democracy is supposed to work is people are supposed to choose their representatives, not the other way around. But what our Republican legislative leaders have done is abuse the redistricting process to try to cement themselves into power, no matter the will of the voters. And that is the gravest uh, part of this, this, this case, because, for instance, just in the last decade, right, we had 13 congresspeople. They drew a map that had 10 Republicans and only three Democrats. The court struck that down uh, as partisan gerrymander, ordered new maps, and under these new maps and these 
elections that just happened a few weeks ago, a 50-50 state, which North Carolina is, we elected seven Democrats and seven Republicans. So the people's voice was heard. The people spoke and not the politicians. And this would loop state Supreme Courts out of the out of being able to do that. For instance, it happened in New York on the other side where a Democratic legislature uh, put together a gerrymandered, very greedy uh, gerrymandered district. And the court there said no way. And and they and they got rid of that. So, I mean, it doesn't matter the party. You're saying the 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 just the court needs to be able to overrule the, the legislative branch. Correct. We, we learned in civics class, we have checks and balances in our government. We have three branches of government. And what the state legislators in North Carolina are asking the Supreme Court to do is truly radical. They're saying that even though they're a creature of our state constitution, they are not subject to it, that they exist somehow above and apart and can pass whatever redistricting they want, even in violation of the will of the people as expressed in our constitution and as interpreted by our state Supreme Court. So the case does appear, and maybe you disagree with this interpretation, but it does seem as though in this conservative court uh, there are at least four votes in favor of what you describe as a radical interpretation, an unconstitutional interpretation, as Governor Cooper says. Um, and it does seem to hinge on uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, and what, what she's gonna, how she's going to vote. Um, here is one of uh, Justice Barrett's questions towards the petitioner. Take a listen. I was just going to ask, is your formalistic test just a way of trying to deal with our precedent, or are you rooting that in the Constitution itself? Because you do have a problem with explaining why these procedural limitations are okay, but substantive limitations are not. Okay, so first of all, translate that for us, because I don't speak legalese. And second of all, where do you think she's leaning? Uh, I can't prognosticate. I'm just not a tea leaf reader. Uh, And I don't think that they're necessarily four solidly in the camp to uphold the North Carolina legislature's position. I heard three justices. I think there are others who are in play. Uh, But what she's getting at is there is no constitutional grounding for the theory that these folks are espousing. And so he's trying to draw the the state was trying to draw the legislators. Excuse me. We're trying to draw a line that said there's a difference between substantive restrictions on election rules and procedural ones. And that's just a distinction without any difference. And, and so you think that uh, probably uh, Alito and Thomas and, what, Gorsuch mm-hmm. are ready to go along with the legislature, North Carolina legislature? I, I'm really bad at this, but that's my guess. That's your guess. And you think that uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh and Barrett might be in the middle right now. Searching. And then uh, Sotomayor and, and Kagan uh, are against it. Right. Yeah. Is that is that did I, did and I Jackson it? and Jackson. Oh, right. Judge uh, Katanji, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. Roberts, some people are saying uh, and Jessica seemed to suggest might be trying to find like some sort of middle ground uh, on this, uh, which he tried to do with the uh, Dobbs decision and, and failed, uh, did not get uh, the other justices to go along with him, the conservative ones. What do you what do you make of that? Is there is there a middle ground to be had here? I know you don't support one, but theoretically, what would one be? I don't think there is one. In our democracy, who possesses political power? Is it the people or is it politicians? Because what the state legislature is asking is they should be able to control and write whatever districting map they want without any control or oversight by our state constitution as interpreted by our state Supreme Court. 
And that is radical. That's never really happened before. And for the Supreme Court to affirm what they are seeking, they are going to be overruling a state Supreme Court, interpreting its own state constitution, which never happens. And the Association of State Supreme Court justices weighed in on your side of this, opposing it, but not your specific state Supreme Court chief justice in North Carolina. He, he, didn't, he didn't join it. Well, it came from the association. I don't know that he embraced the argument that was made by the association. You don't know why? Well, he was in the dissent on the state Supreme Court decision that said our state constitution proscribes partisan gerrymandering. Partisan gerrymandering offends our constitutions because our state constitution has words that are not in the federal constitution, like free elections and popular sovereignty, which means that all political power rests with the people and the people only, not the politicians in the General Assembly who are trying to draw lines to dictate the outcome of an election. The people should be choosing who represents them in Washington. The politicians in our General Assembly should not. North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Coming up, dozens arrested in a violent coup plot involving far-right extremists, this time, thankfully, not here in the United States, in Germany. Then, sources say investigators are looking at two possible motives in the North Carolina power attack, a look at the extremist behavior at the center of both of these theories. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, a far-right coup attempt in Germany halted by a massive raid across Europe today in what a top German official calls a, quote, major anti-terror operation. Investigators say that more than two dozen suspected members or supporters of the so-called Reich Citizens Movement were plotting to violently overthrow the German government and replace it with their own order. CNN senior international correspondent Fred Pleitkin is in Berlin for us. Fred, officials say this relatively new group followed QAnon ideology and even tried to stage their own January 6th style insurrection in Germany? Yeah, yeah, they, they certainly did. And it's certainly something they seem to be plotting right now. They're called the Reichsbürger or Reich citizens. And essentially what they want to do is they want to overthrow the government and the democratic order here in this country and replace it with a monarchy of the style of the German Empire before 1917. Now, all of this on the face of it, Jake, sounds kind of comical. The guy who's in charge of it is a guy called Heinrich Prince of Royce VIII. He's 71 years old. But the Germans are saying they're taking this very seriously because this group has about 21,000 people following it in total. That's just the Reichsburgers themselves. And they themselves are also affiliated with groups like QAnon, with ultra-right extremists. And the Germans are saying that they've been observing this group for months now. And for them, the point where they said that, that they needed to act was when the group not just was putting in place what they called shadow state structures, but they were also arming themselves. They were uh, forming what they said was a military arm of their groups. There were people who had legally armed themselves, some apparently illegally as well. And that's where the German government now has said that they felt they needed to stop this because they believe that this plot was actually taking hold. And now, one of the things that we have to keep in mind, Jake, is that these conspiracy theorists, uh, groups like QAnon, groups like these Reichsbürger as well, they are pretty big here in Germany. And what happened in the U.S. on January 6, 2021, almost happened here in Germany with these Reichsbürger 
in August of 2020. They had a big demonstration here in Berlin. Tens of thousands of people uh, showed up and they tried to storm the German parliament and they actually nearly made that happen. So the Germans are saying they're taking this very seriously. They understand that from this group, German democracy is under attack, Jake. And Fred, how is the German government, how are the the prosecutors handling the arrests and the prosecution for these far-right suspects? Do you know what? It's absolutely high profile and it's certainly something that's on the highest security level as well. You know, one of the things that you don't have very often in Germany is these kind of high profile arrests, is gigantic raids like this. If you look at what happened today, 3,000 police officers in action, more than 100 objects were searched here in Germany, 25 people taken into custody, some are going to remain under arrest. And a lot of those suspects being flown in choppers to the central prosecutor's office here in southern Germany. The Germans are treating this as state terrorism. They are treating this as people who are trying to overthrow the state as a terror group trying to undermine German democracy, Jake. All right, Fred Pleitkin in Berlin for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, he's the only person in history to have voted to impeach two different U.S. presidents. We're going to talk with Republican lawmaker Fred Upton as he prepares to leave D.C. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Republicans are pointing fingers after Herschel Walker's ignominious defeat in Georgia last night, capping an extremely disappointing midterm election cycle for the GOP in which Democrats made historic gains in the Senate and governor's races, even though it's a midterm year and Joe Biden's in the White House. Republicans did gain, of course, a narrow majority in the House of Representatives, but there, Leader McCarthy is facing strong resistance from some members of his own party in his effort to win the speaker's gavel. While Donald Trump, who many say is largely responsible for many of these losses, has already announced another run for the White House. So where does the Republican Party go from here? And joining us now for an exit interview of sorts is Congressman Fred Upton of Michigan, who is retiring after 18 terms uh, in Congress. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, good to be with you. There are a lot of people out there that don't want you to retire. They, yeah, they, I mean, from some, actually, yeah, well, they think, all around the country. They think it's a bad omen for politics because you're bipartisan and you work across the aisle for the kind of Republican you are, a, like, kind of like a Gerald Ford Republican, yeah. right? And that I, rep- I represent part of his old district. Yeah. So do you think your retirement is is foreboding for that reason? Kind of like are we ending an era where bipartisanship is, is coming to a close or where your kind of rational republicanism is coming well, to an I end? I sure hope not. And, you know, we have, I mean, you know this better than anybody else. We have such a divided government today. Senate, House, I mean, President. The only way you're going to get things done, it's not messaging bills. The only way that you're going to get things done. So whether it's immigration, whether it's, you know, energy, whether it's the debt ceiling, the only way you're going to get things done, if you're talking to both sides, and, and you get some unity there. And that was the Reagan model. You know, I worked for President Reagan before I ran for Congress. I was there at the White House for four and a half years. And his model was a Republican president, Democratic Congress. A lot of people in 1980 was like both hands to vote for him, to fill in that circle. But four years later, he won 49 states, all but Mondale's Minnesota. And that's what the country, I think, wants to see. Forget the R&D next to your name. Get things done. And the only way you're going to get things done, it's the Problem Solvers Caucus. It's, you know, a whole bunch of different people working together. And if we don't get that, nothing will happen in the next two years. So ultimately, we've got to get there. You're also a member of the Republican Governance Group. Um, 
generally moderate uh, Republicans, but not only, some conservatives yeah, who just yeah, want to get there's things There's no done. litmus test for it. And, and y- your group sent a letter warning uh, some of the far-right members of the Republican caucus who are threatening to vote against Kevin McCarthy, saying, don't do this. Uh, how do you see this playing out? Or how concerned are you that Kevin McCarthy will not be the next speaker and, and uh, that there will be just real chaos? Well, of course, the issue is this. A little bit of an inside baseball game, but you have to get a majority of those voting for speaker to vote for Kevin. So we have 434 members. So we got one vacancy, one death. So you need 218 if everybody votes for somebody or votes present. When we had our caucus a couple weeks ago to elect Steve Scalise as the new majority leader and Tom Emmer as the new Republican whip, Kevin only got 188 votes out of 222. Uh, That meant there was 30-some that voted for somebody else. And he's got to get all but four on a record. And that was a secret ballot. And so he doesn't necessarily know who they are. And he's, he can only lose four then to vote on January 3rd. When so you are in. worried. You are worried. Though. Yeah, I am. He's got an uphill climb. It's, you know, he needs every day to try and get there. Just And, you know, we had a failure before. Newt Gingrich, you know, when he lost, quote, lost the speakership, he could not get the 218 votes. So what does that happen? What happens? And so that's how Denny Hastert became speaker because he realized he couldn't get 218. And rather than suffer an embarrassing loss as the you know the incumbent speaker, he uh, He threw in the towel. Yeah. So do you think McCarthy might be forced to do that? And if so, who would? No. He's going to push hard. And I'm a McCarthy supporter. I uh, even though I'm I'm not a voter in this thing because I'm not going to be in the next Congress. But I've encouraged him, and I'm convinced that he will. He'll go to the finish line. He he will demand that they may have multiple ballots. Uh, and if, if it fails, if he doesn't get 218, and, uh, you know, it's a little bit less than that because people vote for somebody else, Andy Biggs or whoever it's going to be, they'll have to... It'll be like the Sound of Music at the Salzburg Festival. Yeah. The Von Trapp Family Singers. Oh, they, they, they never <laughs> yeah, come yeah. out. They, they never come out. So we'll have to re-caucus uh, down in the bowels of the Capitol and, you know... Little arm twisting, and they'll come back, and maybe they'll vote another time or two. And I'm not really even sure what the issue is for all of the 30-something or that did not vote for him to be the the minority leader. A whole leader. bunch of different issues. Well, some of them are people who probably don't respect uh, how much he's deferred to Donald Trump, but some of them probably think he hasn't deferred to Donald Trump enough. Donald Trump's shadow casts a pall on the House yeah. Republicans. Yeah. Senator Mitt Romney just today called the Trump endorsement the kiss of death. Uh, the last few days have just been a yeah. disaster yeah. after disaster. He well, met with Holocaust deniers. Uh, the Trump organization, uh, you know, was convicted on 17 counts. I, could, I don't have the time about, to list all. How the about things. throwing out the Constitution? Right. He wants to. <laughs> he wants to get rid of the Constitution. Good grief! In your view, is it time for the party just to move on from Donald Trump? We have to. Um, you know, you saw what happened uh, this week in Georgia. I mean. And you saw what happened in some races that we should have won. Frankly, the Ohio race. I mean, it, Ohio is a red state. Tim Ryan, a colleague, he made it really close. But Arizona's been traditionally well, a red Well, also state. Michigan. You had a bunch of election Michigan, liars. Michigan, oh, we can, we can go there, too. But, I mean, it's the whole top of the ticket, let, let alone uh, we lost the state house and the state senate for the first time in 40 years. And my own state rep, I think for the first time, is now a Democrat in St. Joe, Michigan. Um, 
Lastly, sir, what's what's next for you? You're going to stay involved. You're you're. Not I'm going to be involved. Good. Uh, That's good. I'm not people quite, want you to be. Yeah, I'm I'm not quite like uh, Hamilton. You know, I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm going to be involved. How? I, Do you know? I, uh, I don't know yet. I'm going to be involved with the Problem Solvers Caucus with no labels. Uh, I'm going to be in both places, Michigan and and back in D.C. Uh, I got a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle, and I'd like to think that I can be part of the glue to actually see progress made in in the next couple of years. Well, we're going to want you to come back even without the title, and I I will then call you Fred. All right, you can. You're always insisting on on us calling you Fred, and I I always fight it because you're... Congressman up to I got Dana to call me that. You got Dana so to do next. it. You're next. You're next I'm next. Line. Maybe when you're out of office. Yeah. Congressman, it's been an honor. Thank <laughs> yeah. you so much. Good to see yeah. you. Thanks, Jake. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina proves even losing will not make him question his loyalty to Donald Trump. Stay with us. I think the facts support a, uh, a potential charge against the former president. And, you know, the Justice Department, in my view, needs to hold you know, everyone equally responsible before the law, and that includes former presidents when they engage in criminality. That was January 6th committee member Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat from California, earlier today on NPR, saying that he believes that the panel should make a criminal referral for Donald Trump to the Justice Department. Uh, let's discuss. And, you know, let's take a step back and look at what's happened just since Donald Trump declared his candidacy for 2024 last month. Since that declaration, his company was found guilty of criminal tax fraud. He dined with two well-known anti-Semites and Holocaust deniers. He called for the Constitution to be terminated, or at least part of it. His tax returns were turned over to a House committee. His attorneys found yet more potentially classified documents in his possession. And Herschel Walker, his hand-picked candidate, lost the Senate race in Georgia, a state where every other Republican running statewide won. Pretty remarkable few weeks there for Donald Trump. Uh, Yeah, and in some ways, none of this is really surprising. This has been who Donald Trump has been for many, many uh, years, dining with anti-Semites. That wasn't really a surprise. Uh, The Constitution saying that it should be terminated, that's what January 6th was, an attempt to, you know, sort of overthrow the Constitution and overthrow a free and fair election. We will see what Republicans' sort of reaction to this is. We have seen them essentially say, well, maybe Donald Trump will fall on his own weight, right? They're not necessarily going to push him over, but they at this point are, are essentially signaling that he might not be able to get to the finish line. I think that's what Mitch McConnell said uh, more recently. But so far, they're not really to put any sort of active effort into shoving him uh, out the door and over the bridge. Uh, even given, you have seen in 2018 how horribly they did. In 2020, he lost. Uh, in 2022, they obviously did horribly too. The recent data that I have seen suggests that Roughly 45% of Republicans still want him to be the nominee. About 45% said the same thing for Ron DeSantis. So we'll see how uh, he's able to move forward if he will eventually just peter out among Republican voters. Sarah, um, for most politicians, one of those things I listed would be disqualifying and career-ending, at least for the idea that they would would be the party's uh, leading uh, nominee candidate for, for president, uh, but Donald Trump does seem to have some immunity for some reason. He does, and look, uh, this is the weakest he's been in a long time, though. Um, and but we've seen him fight his way out of these corners, right? You think after January sixth, after staging, you know, attempting a coup, people were abandoning him left and right, but the Republican Party came back to him. We remember how Kevin McCarthy went down to Mar-a-Lago, resurrected him. 
Okay, this is why Republicans cannot do what you're talking. If they just sit back and ignore it, if they hope that he just falls apart on his own, that is, they have made this mistake over and over again. They have to go on offense against him in these moments when he is weak. Otherwise, he can sort of regain power. We don't know if these indictments come, whether they they have a rally around Trump effect from the base, whether Republicans then have to come out and say, oh, no, Trump is being, uh, you know, unfairly maligned. Like, that is how Trump pulls himself back up. And so they have got to unequivocally start condemning these things. Their silence is the thing that allows him to continue to have life. And, Francesca, uh, there are um, others, though, who, who are blaming Mitch McConnell. Uh, who are saying the reason Herschel Walker um, lost is because the Republicans had offered uh, no agenda for him to to run on. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio uh, tweeted this, we have a historically unpopular Democratic president, record inflation, a violent crime wave, and total chaos at the border. And not only did we fail to win a majority, we lost a seat, and the Senate GOP response is going to be to make no changes. Um... He seems to be suggesting, I don't want to put words in Senator Rubio's mouth, but he seems to be suggesting that they should have a new leader or some sort of shakeup when it comes to the Senate Republican Party, not Donald Trump, even though Mitch McConnell did not seem early on to be an enthusiastic supporter of Herschel Walker's candidacy. So what I've been hearing today from sources, though, was that Herschel Walker was the problem, that there was just thing after thing that came out about him. And even his own campaign didn't know about these allegations. I was told by one person close to the situation that they were behind the eight ball constantly because they didn't even know about these things. And how do you defend someone for something when you don't know that these things are going uh, to be coming out? And as far as Donald Trump is concerned, uh, the same person telling me that at least he didn't come down and hold a rally for them, but that he certainly hurt them by just being Donald Trump himself. This is the first time since 1934 when the party in control of the White House picked up seats in the Senate and the governor's office. Do you think, uh, as the Democrat on the panel, that that we are underestimating how much this is because Democrats did well, ran good campaigns, uh, have a popular agenda, and on and on, despite polling that might be to the contrary. What what, what do you think? I think that Republicans did run flawed candidates, but Democrats ran great campaigns. You know, Warnock raised a lot of money. Look at Mark Kelly in Arizona. Look at Maggie Hassan. These folks raised a lot of money and ran really good campaigns, and they turned the campaigns to be referendums on the Republicans in this crazy, terrible environment that everyone said that Democrats had. Democrats were able to go 14-0 in the Senate, pick up three seats, three governors— lose one. Um, and they made all the challenges that we thought we were going to have about the environment, about, about uh, historical trends, about Biden. It all ended up being these um, more, of, more of a contrast election, more of a choice election, where it was Herschel Walker's record that was, uh, that was, on, you know, that, that was being discussed. It was, it was uh, Blake Masters in Arizona. It was his record. It was Dr. Oz. So even though there were issues at the top of the, you know, at, you know, with with economic issues with with President Biden, even though all that stuff, all of these campaigns were able to run very sophisticated efforts where they registered a lot of voters in Georgia. Thanks, Stacey Abrams, and also made it about the Republicans, which is unbelievable in a midterm where everyone thought we were going to be. Yeah, dead. I mean, it was sort of an it was a continuation of the anti-Trump coalition that we saw in 2020. Uh, young voters, African-American voters, AAPI voters, college educated white voters, suburban voters. That's what they were able to do in state after state. 
Trump was essentially on the ballot again because there were these hand-picked candidates uh, who were speaking like Trump. Trump would come into these uh, different states, whether it was Arizona or, or Michigan, and, and they were really able to do it. And I think if you're a Democrat, particularly if you're looking at Georgia, Democrats have been looking at southern states to see if they could turn one of those states uh, purple, less red at least. And in Georgia, it was a perfect storm. Raphael Warnock, a rising star, I think, in the Democratic Party. People are going to be talking about him for 2024 if Biden doesn't run or certainly 2028. Uh, And he was really able uh, to pull it together. And incumbents were just strong. On the Republican side, though, going back to what you asked about the Republicans who are speaking out against Donald Trump, Okay, more more distancing themselves from him. But how many of them who are considering presidential elections are actually going to run in 2024? And I think that's where this conversation moves now. Which of them are willing to challenge him on a debate stage? And and we certainly just don't know the answer. You know, every uh, talk about Georgia, every Republican running statewide in Georgia, except for Herschel Walker, won and won handily. Uh, David French uh, has a column out today basically saying that Governor Kemp uh, has has shown that there is a path for conservatives to distance themselves from Donald Trump and win elections. Yeah, but the thing is, is that Republicans are boxed in now, right? Because their base wants these very Trumpy candidates in these primaries, but then they get these candidates that can't win general elections. And the gap between what the base voters want and what general election swing voters, independent voters, and soft Republican voters will accept uh, is just getting bigger and bigger for the Republicans. But I, and I don't want to take anything away from Democrats, but I will say in part of that coalition that defeated so many of these candidates included a lot of Republicans. In Arizona, 11% of the people who voted for Katie Hobbs over Carrie Lake were Republicans. And so Republicans are rejecting these candidates at significant chunks, and that's a big part of what's making the difference. Can I just say one thing on that? You're absolutely right. There were Republicans crossovers. But if you look at a lot of these Democrats who ran, from start to finish, they didn't have to change their messaging. And if you look at in Arizona, if you look at some of these places, you had Republicans who were so far out there on the right. And then by the time they won and got to the general, they couldn't pivot back to the middle. They tried I mean, to. Uh, they tried to, but like, they uh, couldn't Blake do Masters. it. Like Masters tried to, Oz, but it was too late. And that's a big, and, and I think if you look at how Democrats ran it, they were able to run from start to finish as these candidates that were accessible. and, 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 and They were normal enough normal that Republicans, enough. That Repo- that Republicans would vote for them. Absolutely. Some and they didn't have the extreme label that Republicans you know, had on them. So. All right. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate it. North Carolina is now offering a reward for information in the power substation attacks as investigators zero in on possible motives. We'll talk about that next. Stay with us. In North Carolina, investigators are zeroing in on two possible motives behind the attack on the power stations that left more than 40,000 people without power. The first is the writings of extremist groups in online chat forums encouraging attacks on critical infrastructure. The second, the recent disruptions of LGBTQ events across the country. This comes as the state is now offering a $75,000 reward in the case for information leading to the arrest of whoever did it. Joining us now to discuss is Chris Krebs. He is a former cybersecurity director for the Department of Homeland Security. Chris, thanks for joining us. You noted to us that in the last three weeks, there have been six incidents at substations, this one in North Carolina, the others in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Do you think that they're possibly related? It's possible. Um, It's still in the early days of both or all the investigations. But what's important to note is of those six, two have included gunfire. Others were vandalism and arson. So, and that's, that's just since November 17th. So th- it's been a pretty active threat space. And you know, notably, North Carolina has the most significant outage, 40,000 uh, 40, residents. 
plus the hallmarks of a coordinated intentional attack. Two substations, very intentional targeting of critical equipment on the site. So that tells me that this is much more than just a, you know, a, a local hunter or something that taking pot shots at equipment. Yeah, and it, and it would seem, just based on uh, conversations we've had, we've had about this, substations are, they tend to be remote. They tend to be places that people don't even necessarily know about. So there would seem to be, you know, more strategy and conspiracy to yeah. do such a thing. Well, look, there are about 55,000 substations, energy substations throughout the United States. I would uh, suspect most of your viewers see so many of them throughout the day that they actually kind of, you know, glaze over. They don't don't really notice how how kind of uh, present they are. This one in particular, though, rural county, more counties, uh, it's fairly rural. Uh, It was actually right off a highway, but, you know, still up against a a wooded area. So it, it was secluded, yet... Uh, probably accessible. It was, I will note, though, a lower voltage substation. And when you think about critical substations, it's the higher voltage substations that maybe have fed, you know, Raleigh or Charlotte in the state of North Carolina that would have been larger, that would have had probably a a much more uh, robust security presence. So what do you make of the two motives investigators are narrowing it down to far right extremism and anti-LGBTQ uh, extremism. Well, on the first, on the far right, we know through uh, doctrine, through planning documents that have been posted online, uh, and prior convictions and admissions of guilt by far right extremists, including white supremacists, that this is part of their plan. That they intend to target the grid, take uh, you know communities offline, create civil unrest, and then in some cases lead to actually race wars. And and that was the case in February of 2022, this past February, where three men pled guilty to planning an attack on substations throughout the country. So we know it's part of their doctrine. We've seen it happen over the last several years. Uh, On the second piece, the LGBTQ community, that was some of the early speculation online. There was a group that had, you know, kind of issued a soft call to action in Moore County. Uh, so I, it lines up, I think, with available information. Again, too soon to say, uh, and there's still a long way to go in the investigation. How do we protect our critical infrastructure from these kinds of attacks, given how many targets there are? Well, th- I think the, the real concern here, the real challenge is that the threat matrix, so to speak, for the grid is, uh, it, it's, it's increasing, unfortunately. You've got extreme weather events, you have these, these human-driven uh, domestic extremist events. You have cyber attacks, right? So it's, it's incredibly complicated and complex. Uh, utility groups are spending a significant amount of funding. It's actually one of the best coordinating groups with the federal government, law enforcement, and the agency that I ran, CISA, as well as Department of Energy. Uh, but those threats are so diverse. In this one specifically, domestic extremism, I think this is where... The, the federal law enforcement and state law enforcement are really going to have to step up and intervene left of boom, which means before the event or incident happens uh, so that we can we can stop the bad thing before it actually happens. And, and you know, I personally find it hard to believe that uh, energy uh, companies need to, you know, should be responsible for shelling out hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to to protect a bunch of, uh, you know, crackpots that are trying to bring down society. So you're saying go after the crackpots before they get to the, the substation. Deterrence in a, in a way like that, impose costs, impose consequences. And I think that's really one of the most critical aspects of this event is we need the collar and the perp walk to send a strong message 
to uh, to the community, to these people that are playing these events that it's that we're, we're not going to tolerate it. Chris Krebs, thanks as always. Good to see you, sir. A major highway now being threatened by lava from the erupting volcano in Hawaii. Mother Nature could make conditions even worse. But first, a programming note. Sunday. It's the time of year to be inspired and honor some of humanity's best. We have found homes for almost 3,000 dogs. Our community engagement center used to be the community drug house. I want my grandchildren to have it better than what I have it today. It has always wanted to serve other people. Human suffering has no borders. People are people and love is love. Join Anderson Cooper and Kelly Ripa live as they present the 2022 Hero of the Year. Join me in honoring CNN Hero of the Year. CNN Heroes, an all-star tribute, Sunday at 8. Lava from Hawaii's Mauna Loa volcano has crept to less than two miles from a major interstate highway on Hawaii's Big Island. All areas adjacent to the Daniel K. Inouye Highway near the lava flow have been closed, although the highway itself remains open in both directions as of now. There's also a 50% chance of rain, which might create dense fog and make driving hazardous. Internationally, jury deliberations are underway in the Los Angeles sexual assault trial of disgraced former movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein faces two counts of forcible rape and five counts of sexual assault involving four women. The 70-year-old is already serving prison time for a 2020 rape and criminal sexual act conviction in New York. CNN's Natasha Chen is following this current trial in California. And Natasha, bring us up to speed on what each side has argued. Yeah, Jake, the prosecutors are describing this Hollywood titan using his power to prey on and silence women. Uh, the prosecutor in the closing statement said, quote, it is time to bring the kingmaker to justice. Now, you're thinking he's already been brought to justice in a New York trial where he was convicted, sentenced to 23 years in prison. Well, he's appealing that case, which then makes this L.A. case extremely critical. There were actually more women who testified in this trial compared to the New York one. And the sentencing range is far greater as well. If convicted here, he could get 60 years to life. Uh, the prosecutors kept describing a pattern of behavior here. Uh, as you mentioned, seven charges involving four women, one of whom is the wife of California Governor Gavin Newsom, Jennifer Siebel Newsom. Uh, two of the other accusers describe incidents that happened allegedly one day apart from each other in 2013. Now, the defense, on the other hand, tells the jury that the prosecution is asking them to simply take the women's word for it. Uh, without a whole lot of evidence. Uh, the defense also called the accusers, quote, fame and fortune seekers and said that they benefited from what they call a transactional relationship. The jury's been deliberating since late Friday, so we'll see what they come up with, Jake. All right, Natasha Chen, thank you. Today marks 81 years since Japan's surprise attack on the U.S. Navy's Pearl Harbor base in Hawaii. The U.S. lost more than 2,000 lives when the Japanese Imperial Navy destroyed American battleships and airplanes. Frank Iman survived that attack. He was a French horn player and was getting ready to play the Morning Colors on December 7th, 1941. Iman is now 104 years old. Just last month, he broke his own 
Guinness World Record as the world's oldest conductor. Eamon led the U.S. Air Force Band's rendition of In the Mood here in D.C. Video of Eamon's accomplishment has now been viewed online more than 3.7 million times. We salute him and we salute all of his colleagues and his former shipmates. May their memories be a blessing. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place next door that I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.